Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. Fecal transplantation is an established procedure for controlling recurrent Clostridium difficile infection by replenishing healthy bacteria in the gut. Researchers explore novel applications of fecal transplantation for treating other conditions, including psychiatric disorders. In this episode, Iris Klobotsky from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Ian Carroll, an assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Kylie Reed, a PhD candidate in Carroll's lab, to learn more about how the current understanding of treating infectious disease with fecal transplantation drives new applications of this therapy for psychiatric conditions like eating disorders. The gut microbiome has a significant influence on human physiology. It also regulates behavior, mood, appetite, nutrient metabolism, and gastrointestinal health. Individuals with eating disorders such as anorexia nervosa experience profound changes in these domains, including during nutritional rehabilitation. The gut microbiome of anorexia patients is different than healthy individuals. Researchers are uncovering how these differences influence disease progression and how innovative treatments such as fecal microbiota transplantation can be of benefit. At the core of this work is the intricate relationship between microbial communities and their hosts, a subject that sparked Ian Carroll's interest when he was still a student. Way back, I I was doing my PhD in Trinity College in Ireland. I worked on the Helicobacter pylori. That microbe was very interesting because not a lot of people really believed at the time that a microbe was a permanent resident in the stomach because it was such a harsh environment. Then Barry Marshall, who is a very creative scientist, drank a culture of that organism to show that it would colonize his stomach. I don't recommend ever doing that. It established that Helicobacter pylori was a resident of the GI tract, specifically in the stomach, and it caused disease. Subsequent studies showed that that microbe was able to inject molecules into the host epithelial cells and rearrange the structure of the cell. That really fascinated me. This host-microbe relationship is what spurred my interest in science. The host-microbe relationship has exploded, uh, specifically with complex microbial communities in the gut. When I arrived, those data were starting to emerge and the clinical relevance was being explored. That's where I got really hooked onto looking at microbial communities in the gut and what influence it has on the host. A major driver of the relationship between gut microbes and human physiology is food intake and the body's nutritional status. The medicinal potential of food is an ancient concept, and in the case of anorexia patients, the current standard of care includes refeeding with high-calorie foods to shift the body from a physiological state of starvation to a metabolically healthy one. Nutritional therapy is also an important approach for ameliorating a host of other diseases and disorders. It is becoming increasingly clear to researchers that gut microbes have an important role to play in mediating such benefits. For Kylie Reed, her own personal health journey and scientific passion led her on a pursuit to understand the relationship between gut microbes, the brain, and eating behaviors in anorexia patients. 
I, unfortunately, like so many people, have had my own struggles with autoimmune complications and have a mysterious health history that's never been fully sorted out through different doctors. The one thing that they all recommended was exploring nutritional avenues for maintaining a healthy or happy enough state of well-being. I happen to also be a massive foodie, so at first that was kind of devastating news because when we think of monitoring our health through nutrition, the restriction, don't eat this, don't eat that, comes to mind first before the more positive aspects. Throughout my own personal journey, I fell in love with the medicinal potential of food and nutrition just in normal health and disease states. On top of that, I was a neuroscience minor during my undergraduate degree, and I just fell in love with the science of the gut-brain axis. That led me straight into Ian's lab, which could not have been a better fit for me to study the juxtaposition of food behaviors, mood behaviors, metabolism, and these complex microbial communities all in one disease state that is anorexia nervosa. That's how I got here. I wouldn't say I was dreaming of bacteria and fungus when I was a little girl. Gut microbial communities can change dramatically in response to alterations in their environment, including diet and disease. For example, it is known that the typical Western diet contributes to obesity and to changes in gut microbial communities such as less overall diversity and the preferential proliferation of certain microbes at the expense of others. Carol and his team previously studied whether nutrient restriction in anorexia nervosa affects the gut microbiota, driving it towards an unhealthy state of dysbiosis, and whether refeeding brings the gut's microbial communities back into balance. We don't believe that the intestinal microbiota causes this psychiatric disorder, we think because the intestinal microbiota is so intimately linked to health, that if there is a change in the intestinal microbiota, that may contribute symptoms associated with anorexia nervosa. We are lucky to have a really well-established eating disorders unit here at UNC Chapel Hill. When a patient was admitted to the eating disorders unit, we collected a fecal sample. And then when they were discharged, we collected another fecal sample. We got sex and age matched non-eating disorder controls and profiled the intestinal microbiota in all of those samples. The microbial communities in the gut metabolize the food that you eat. If the microbes changed in a patient upon admission to an eating disorders unit, they may metabolize the food differently and may not provide energy to the host the way they could in a quote-unquote healthy individual. We showed that there were differences at admission and discharge in the intestinal microbiota in these patients, and they were distinct to the controls at discharge. So when the patients had been re-nourished, the microbiota changed from admission, but it wasn't fully recovered to that of a non-eating disorders control patient. That was one of our major findings. We did this at two different clinical eating disorder sites and changes we saw in the intestinal microbiota prior to and post re-nourishment were very similar, which was a surprising finding as well. These findings have important implications for weight gain, especially for eating disorder treatment strategies. 
From a metabolic perspective, anorexia patients are in an ongoing physiological state of starvation. This means that their body relies on different sources and biochemical pathways for energy production. It also prioritizes energy to essential organs by shifting certain metabolic pathways to preserve the most critical bodily functions. Energy gets shunted to the brain, leading to fat and muscle mass loss. Gut microbe communities play an important role in nutrient degradation and energy production. For example, healthy individuals who consume sufficient carbohydrates have populations of gut microbes specialized for degrading carbohydrates, which the body easily uses as energy in the form of glucose. However, anorexia patients who severely restrict carbohydrate consumption have a significant reduction in gut microbes that degrade carbohydrates. Instead, their guts are populated by microbes that specialize in breaking down protein into amino acids. Based off of the sequencing methods, we were able to link the microbes to their metabolic potential and what they were capable of doing. It was super exciting and interesting that the metabolic potential that we detected in the different groups was what you would expect based on the diets of the patients with anorexia versus the controls. Patients, when they were admitted to the unit, saw an increased potential to do certain metabolic things that were in line with what they were consuming. So basically a low-carbohydrate, low-sugar diet, whereas the controls, you see what you would expect in a normative population of individuals who are eating carbohydrates, fats, sugars as well. That was just exciting and encouraging for future research that we are already seeing trends in the metabolic functioning of those microbes, even after just a short amount of treatment through the unit. Alongside clinical studies, researchers raise mice in sterile environments as a tool for studying host microbiome relationships, a field known as notobiotics. By controlling the microbial landscape of these animals, scientists can gain insight into how their physiology differs from animals that encounter the normal repertoire of microbes, which go on to constitute their internal microbial ecosystems. Germ-free mice raised in sterile environments consume more food but gain less fat. The implications of this for anorexia patients is important. Because gut microbes help the body metabolize food and anorexia patients have fewer carbohydrate-metabolizing microbes, Repopulating their guts with microbes that are more efficient at supporting energy production and weight gain may be a promising treatment strategy. To achieve this, Carol Reed and other researchers are looking to fecal microbiota transplantation, also known as FMT. Fecal microbiota transplantation is typically used for C. diff infections, where C. difficile blooms and it's resistant to antibiotics. You infuse a fecal slurry either into the duodenum or via uh, the colon to reestablish a normal microbial community and competitively exclude the bad bug, in this case, Clostridium difficile. This is really effective in people who have recurrent C. diff infections, is 95% effective. It's been well established. If we believe that a change in the microbiota is perpetuating or causing a disease, then maybe an FMT may help. There are numerous diseases associated with a dysbiotic intestinal microbiota. If we can change the microbes via FMT, we may alleviate or even cure the disease. 
a few years ago, we wrote an IND, which is an investigation on new drug application to the FDA. This was done by a very talented scientist in my lab, Emily Bulick-Sullivan, who's currently doing an MD-PhD. We were going to do FMT in patients with anorexia nervosa. We were hoping to reestablish a normal gut microbial ecosystem that would metabolize food normally, may even change mood in these patients and help them gain weight in a safe and rapid manner. Unfortunately, we had a pandemic and we were receiving funding from a company that makes FMTs. But FMTs were put on hold for a while, even for C. diff infections. Several years ago, Carol's colleague, Ajay Golati, used fecal microbiota transplantation in an eight-year-old girl who was admitted to the emergency room appearing as though she had consumed alcohol. However, she neither consumed alcohol nor was drunk. Instead, she was suffering from a metabolic disorder that was unresponsive to conventional therapies, but resolved after fecal transplantation. He found out that she had short bowel syndrome. That's usually a condition that occurs when you're born, if part of your GI tract is not fully functional, or if you had necrotizing enterocolitis, and you had to resect a part of your bowel. You're left with this short space for nutrient digestion and absorption. So you have to change the way you eat. This young girl had a short bowel, but also dizziness, ataxia. My colleague worked out that this girl was suffering from D-lactic acidosis. We normally produce L-lactic acid in our body, but microbes produce D-lactic acid. And this was spilling from her gut into her blood. My colleague was very clever and he read a case study where someone had used FMT in this very specific uh, case. He wrote an emergency IND, got approved by the FDA and gave this girl an FMT. And it worked. Her delactic acid levels in the blood plummeted. Carol's lab profiled the microbiota in the fecal samples collected from this young girl over the course of her hospital visits and treatment. They hypothesized that the fecal microbiota transplant would reduce the gut microbes, adept at producing lactic acid, which would in turn reduce D-lactic acid in the gut. However, what they found instead was surprising. As it turns out, there was more lactic acid producers in the gut of this patient and there was more D-lactic acid in the feces. So our hypothesis was completely wrong. But I love when that happens because it makes us think, we haven't investigated this any further, but we believe that because microbes influence the barrier function of the intestinal tract, that perhaps although we increased lactic acid producers and we increased the D-lactic acid in the gut, we improved the barrier function that stopped the D-lactic acid spilling into the blood of this individual. But we don't know that for sure. Improvement in the structure and function of the gut's barrier is one mechanism by which fecal microbiota transplantation may heal diseases. Carol Reed and their team are also exploring another possible mechanism, the energy harvest potential of gut microbes. Gut microbes process approximately 10% of the calories that the human body absorbs each day. Some microbes 
are more efficient than others at harvesting energy from the nutrients in food. An individual who has fewer of these efficient microbes in their gut will receive fewer available calories from their food each day. Some microbes might be greedier than others. A certain strain of bacteria might be efficient at producing energy from the food that the host is consuming. However, they can hold on to that energy and utilize it for their own personal gain, whereas other microbes might be producing more energy that they are excreting, and then it is picked up by the human host and directly available for us as energy. We have been looking into this in the context of really low body weight populations and higher body weight and obesity populations. We are hoping that certain body weight states will be associated or correlated with um, the amount of energy that you are excreting in your stool. We're using a stool calorie loss as a proxy for energy harvest because any calories that you are excreting in your stool are calories that your body was not able to absorb when that food was passing through your GI tract. We suspect that in situations such as starvation, so anorexia nervosa, or chronic diseases in which low body weight is a symptom or affiliated with the disease, that the microbes are less efficient at extracting energy from the food. If we can identify microbes that are efficient at extracting energy and providing it to the host, then maybe FMT or pre or probiotics. Can we give that to our patients to help them have a more efficient capacity to extract energy from their gut. With this in mind, Carol Reed and their team are considering how to improve current refeeding treatment protocols for anorexia patients, for whom the physical and psychological distress of consuming and maintaining sufficient calories is challenging. Their intense fear of food and weight gain is a major hurdle to successful treatment and can pose challenges to investigating new treatment strategies. One way to circumvent this is to use fecal transplantation to repopulate the gut with microbes that are more efficient at harvesting energy from food. In this way, patients excrete fewer calories, saving time, energy, resources, and emotional distress during renourishment protocols. To gain a more fulsome understanding of how the gut microbiome mediates weight change, Carol's lab is also studying the weight loss in obesity patients following bariatric surgery. In another student's project in her lab, she's looking at it in the population on the other end of the body weight spectrum with bariatric surgery patients. So is there some microbial change after their surgery that leads to the proliferation of microbes that are less efficient at extracting energy, thus contributing to more weight loss and less weight gain after surgery? And these potential mechanisms you can really apply at every end of the body weight spectrum, which highlights some really interesting areas of research and using a population of people with obesity and comparing that to a population of people with severe restriction or malnourishment and seeing how these mechanisms follow our causal train of thought on either end. And if they do, how does that make sense and where can we take that moving forward? And if they don't, then how can we use that knowledge and start asking different questions about different mechanisms. I always found it interesting that you can look at a Kit Kat bar, let's get the back of it, and it says 200 calories. I always assumed that's 200 calories directly into my body. But it's not. If you were 100% efficient at metabolizing that bar, then you get 200 calories. So 
you can uh, appreciate that there are people out there who could eat the same Kit Kat bar as me. I could maybe get 120 calories where someone else could get 180 calories out of it. That could account for some people where they can eat a lot of food and gain less weight than someone who eats a little bit of food and then struggles to lose weight. I used to be like that, but I lost it somehow. Gut microbes are the main generators of neurotransmitters and hormones that affect the reward and feeding pathways in the brain. For example, 90% of serotonin, also known as the happiness hormone, is produced in the human gut. Given that anorexia is also associated with anxiety and depression, augmenting the gut microbiota is a potentially far-reaching strategy for improving a range of psychiatric disorders. Yet, the underlying concepts and the therapy itself are not novel. FMT was used in ancient China, where it was fermented infant feces. It was called yellow soup, and you would consume it. It was supposed to be a panacea. It would cure many disease. The other thing to consider is that the brain-gut axis has been well-known for a long time. If you go back to Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, they say that there's more of gravy than grave to you. They're talking about the gut-brain axis. But what we're talking about now is the microbe gut-brain axis. It's not just what's your gut feeling, but what your microbes are telling your gut to feel, and that's going to influence your brain. Neurotransmitters in a germ-free mice are well off balance. There are microbes that can metabolize tryptophan, which is the precursor to serotonin, and selfishly use it, and you don't get as much serotonin as you want. This has led to the idea that you can use microbes to change your mood. As an investigator in Ireland, John Crine and Ted Dynan coined the term psychobiotics. So these are probiotics that they hope will be able to change your mood. Reed and Carol are excited about the future of this field and their role in advancing new treatments for individuals with anorexia nervosa. Among their future clinical directions is picking up where they left off before the pandemic hit. A clinical trial of fecal microbiota transplantation in patients with anorexia may provide more support for re-establishing a normal gut microbiota that metabolizes food efficiently, thereby aiding recovery in tandem with current treatment approaches. There are a lot of boring things associated with academia, but the positives outweigh the negatives and being able to work on research that could potentially have a meaningful impact in a clinical setting is really exciting. Being a research scientist in training really does feel like a privilege. I'm so honored to have the freedom and collaborative environment to ask questions that may be capable of impacting health long-term to me is what gets me excited. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Iris Kolbatsky. Please join us next as we learn about how cutting-edge smart technologies allow scientists to take their research to the next level by streamlining common experimental workflows. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.